Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. Today I'm going to be joined by somebody who's going to talk to you about the radical women of the East End of London. Hello, my name's Una Gay and I'm one of the footprints of London tour guides. I specialise in political, radical and women's history and you can find my walks on the Footprints of London website or email me on una.gay at iCloud.com. Hi, Una. Nice to see you again. Yeah, great. I thought what we'd do today, we'll talk about the East End, one of my favourite parts of London. Um, Always been sort of poverty stricken, I suppose, and poor. Um, What I'd like to see or to talk about is how women helped to overcome the problems that the East End faced. So maybe you could sort of talk to me about some of the characters and some of the women that had influence in the area. Yeah, and in, women had a lot of influence, far more than you might imagine, uh, starting from, say, Annie Besant, who was the journalist who helped organise the strike at the Bryant and May match factory. I know, that's now the Bow Quarter Luxury Flats. And that is now Luxury Flats. But if you thought yourself back 140 years, it would have been an enormous factory. Uh, run in a very unpleasant way. Uh, The teenage girls there, if you turned up uh, five minutes late, you'd lose half a day's pay. You'd have to uh, put your hand up if you needed to go to the toilet. And more seriously, they were working with a dangerous material, yellow phosphorus, which could cause a horrible disease called flossy jaw, where your jaw was basically cancerous. It was eaten away by, by the material. So... Annie Besant was a campaigning journalist and she did some undercover work interviewing the girls who who worked there. When management found out, they insisted that everybody sign a declaration that the factory was perfect and and the lies that had been told by Annie Besant were were untrue. Uh, And spontaneously, the whole workforce of over a thousand girls and women just walked out. Ona, what time, what period are we talking about? This is 1888. Right, Okay. Um, Now, recent research shows it wasn't just organised by Annie Besant from outside. Uh, One of the leaders of the strike was um, an Irish girl called uh, Sarah Chapman, um, and she was one of the few workers who was literate. So she had quite an important role in organising the strike. And she went on to work in the trade union movement. So it's, it's a fascinating story because it showed that unskilled workers, moreover women, could hold out for um, a big strike. Previously, the, the trade union 
movement was run by miners and railwaymen and they didn't think that unskilled workers would be able to organise themselves to go out and strike. So this is the start of what's called new unionism. The following year, 1889, the gas workers strike uh, in Beckton. Again, they were treated as unskilled and people didn't think they would succeed, but they were uh, They were also successful. And there's another woman involved in that. That's Eleanor Marks, daughter of the famous Karl Marx. She was a oh, very wow. effective trade union organiser. She helped Will Thorne, the leader of the gas workers, who went on to be an MP for West Ham. Uh, she taught him how to read and write and she drew up the constitution of, of the trade union. She would have had a really big impact on the Labour movement if she hadn't fallen in love with the total pain in the neck, shall we say. <laughs> As women are prone to do on occasion. Um, and committed suicide in her 40s. Terrible loss. Oh, wow. Um, but the match workers' strike caught the headlines, got some very sympathetic reportage, um, and, and after three weeks, they, they won. They got a lot of safety improvements and a pay And rise. conditions definitely improved for them. And conditions improved, uh, particularly in the next few decades. Brian and May was actually a Quaker factory, so it was slightly strange that they were involved in bad employment practices because normally the Quakers, like a round tree chocolate factory at York, were, were good employers. Yes, yeah. Yeah, because obviously I drive past the building sometimes, um, that sort of red-bricked... Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic landmark in, in the East End. Yeah. And if you look at the um, the newsletters that the company produced in the 20s, they had chiropodists coming in. You know, it was a properly run workforce. Oh, so it definitely improved things It for improved them. a lot. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, and yeah. Um, they, they produced matches there till the 70s. And then sadly, um, you know, we didn't produce that sort of thing in Britain anymore. And uh, it became one of the first sort of gated community developments yeah. in um the East End. Now, you talked about landmarks. On the knowledge, um, certain examiners will often have sort of landmarks that they like to ask the candidates. And one of the examiners always used to ask the Lansbury clock. Oh, yes. Now, what can you tell me about the lady and the clock? Yeah, well, this was a clock dedicated to the memory of Minnie Lansbury. She was the daughter-in-law of George Lansbury, the local MP and leader of the Poplar Council in 1921. Um, and George Lansbury decided that they were going to have um, a strike they were not going to collect the rates from the poor people of Poplar. It's a complicated story, but in those days, there was no redistribution of funds within London. So if you were Westminster or Kensington and Chelsea, you'd pay the same amount to keep the fire service going or the police service going across London as you would in Poplar, although uh, the rateable values were much lower. So Lansbury and the whole council decided, no, they weren't going to collect the votes. They were found in contempt of court and 30 councillors, six of whom were women, were sent to prison. And the men went to Brixton and the women went to Holloway. But Lansbury knew his law and he got it arranged with the governor of Brixton that they, he would bust the women down from Holloway so they could have a monthly council meeting because that was the oh, law. And they took over the governor's room at uh, Brixton. And it all got to be very embarrassing for the government because it was looking as though Clement Attlee and Stepney was going to do the same. So eventually they, the government caved in. They passed some emergency legislation to allow this redistribution of money across London and the councillors 
were released. So it should have been a happy ending, but Holloway, even in the 20s, was pretty grim and Lansbury had caught um, pneumonia in Holloway and she lingered on. She died on the 1st of January 1922 and she she had... she was only 31, so it was a terrible tragedy. Oh, yeah, there was absolutely. an enormous East End funeral. Uh, the streets were packed. Uh, and so Poplar was a Labour council, and it was very proud five years later to open Electric House, which is the block of flats on which the clock is hung, because it was the first council flats to be powered entirely by electricity in Poplar. And Poplar ran its own electricity generator, so it could often offer specially low rates to its tenants. So it's a beautiful clock. Uh, Minnie Lansbury was Jewish. She, uh, her family had come from Eastern Europe to escape the, the pogroms. And so there's always been a lot of East End Jewish interest in her as well. Um, and so her, it wasn't her direct granddaughter because her, her husband married again, but Angela Lansbury herself came over, the, act, the actor, yeah. uh, and helped reopen it in when it was uh, redone, renovated in, I think, around 2009. Oh, so nice you'll find story. a plaque there. Yeah, the Lansbury family is fascinating because they either either went into politics or entertainment. Okay, so let's continue our travels around the East End and look at some of these other ladies who had an influence in the area. Yeah, well, you get up to Roman Road Market, which, of course, has been running for hundreds of years. Yeah, no, and well. that's where Sylvia Pankhurst had her headquarters when she started to run the Federation of East London Suffragettes. If you remember, her mother, Emmeline, had set up uh, the suffragette organisation. Sylvia found herself more and more drawn to radical socialist causes. And in the end, she split with her mother and elder sister, Christabel, and they became a separate organisation in 1914. Right. In the meantime, Sylvia and her colleagues had really organised the working class women around and the Rome Road in particular. They sold a newspaper called the Women's Dreadnought across the Roman Road uh, on on market days. Um, There were famous occasions when she spoke at what was the Bow Baths uh, which was used as a sort of meeting room right. in winter times, and and the did police... they enjoy popular support amongst the local? There was community. a lot of popular support um, when Sylvia was in and out of prison because she was subject to what was called the cat and mouse act. When you were well enough, you were let out of Holloway, and then when you were better, you were supposed to report back to the police to be taken back in to Holloway. Oh, I see. Uh, if you were doing hunger strikes, and they called it cat and mouse. And so they when you were it ill, cat. You were let out. When you were better, you were put back in again. Exactly. And you were meant to actually go to a local police station and say, please put me back in because I'm well enough now. <laughs> well, that wasn't ever going to happen, no, was not. it? No. no. So her elder sister, Christabel, had fled to Paris to avoid being picked up. But Sylvia found refuge with a Mrs. Ford, uh, with a Mrs. Payne in Ford Road. Most of that road has been redeveloped now. Yeah. Um, and that's where she was released to. And the police used to go up and down the road trying to find a neighbour who would let them spy on Sylvia so that when she was 
well enough to walk and get out and about, they would be able to pick her up again. Uh, and it was a local legend that no one, none, none of the neighbours were prepared to take the police's money. You know, and that's a well way done, yeah. of showing that she had a lot of support. She was genuine. She was actually living there. She wasn't, you know, a lady bountiful coming in and out for campaigns and disappearing. She was actually living and, and working there. And she proved that in the First World War when uh, she set up a toy factory in uh, Norman Grove. It's just off Roman Road. Because initially, in the first months of the war, a lot of men marched off to the war and the war office, you'll be unsurprised to hear, wasn't very organised. So the wives and dependents should have got allowances, but that took months to organise and suddenly okay. these families were destitute. So she set up a factory to give them work, which she, she ran on equal pay and she set up a creche um, in a building that's no longer gone. But if you go up to the, the Lord Morpeth, pub i know it yeah um you'll find a wonderful mural there because that was close to where the the creche operated okay um now sylvia put these toys in uh, a car she she had a woman nora smythe who was a great friend and and very rich which was quite helpful because nora under uh under wrote quite a lot of the toy factory uh finances uh and then she took them up to see gordon selfridge uh, who decided he'd stock these toys. It was interesting that the whole toy um, manufacturer had been disrupted. The Germans had been the, the major exporters of toys. Right. Suddenly there was a gap in the market uh, yeah. and she used wood from George Lansbury's factory round the corner in St. Stephen's Road to make the toys. So she was an astute businesswoman. Yeah, absolutely. What's coming across to me um, is that this was... Th- class divide it went straight through all classes everybody seemed to be working together yes which that's right unless i'm wrong seemed to be unusual for the time it was but i think women are pretty good at organizing across class lines because they face similar struggles you know everyone has to you know get their, their child in, yeah. cared organized yeah. or, and, and now and also the elder care you know yeah. that's something that women are used to doing yeah it figures yeah. Uh, so I think even today you'll find most community groups, the backbone, tend yeah. to be... So moving on from winning. Roman Road, where are we going to next? Well, just to a most beautiful square in Bow, which is Tredegar Square. Uh, I know it well, Una, and I always think it looks out of place. It, it almost looks like it belongs to Islington. Yes, it is out of place. It was built by uh, Charles Morgan, who came from Tredegar in South Wales. He'd made a fortune in iron and steel. So Hence the name, yeah. He thought he'd, he'd try his hand at a bit of development. So he laid out the square in the 1830s and 1840s, but it wasn't successful because it was in the East End. You get the smells from the docks and the chemical works and the gas works. So the East End's never really been a fashionable place to work until recently, until the docks have gone and Canary Wharf and, and everything. Yeah. But it was a respectable spot, lovely, lovely houses. Uh, and at number 40, there lived uh, a man called Henry Wainwright who uh, ran a factory making brushes. Um, and he fell in love with an actress and he set her up in the house. His wife, of course, knew nothing about this sort of thing. And, <laughs> you know, this is a Victorian age. This yeah. is the 1870s, very common. But then the actress, Harriet Lane, disappears. And a couple of years later, he's moving his factory and he asks one of his uh, workmen to help him with this bundle, 
which is all wrapped up. And while um, while Henry's gone off to fight, fetch a cab, the workman looks inside, and it's the, it's the severed limbs and torso of a woman. Oh, terrible! And this is a classic Victorian murder, the sort of thing that the, that they loved. Uh, and he was hanged for her murder. Uh, so I tell this story because it does talk about the sort of the de- the depths of Victorian London and the East End women would often have to resort to prostitution to feed their children uh, and keep a roof over their head. Um, yeah, this wasn't a choice, was it? They it had no choice. choice. They had no choice. And often they went in and out of prostitution depending on their financial circumstances. So if you read your Charles Dickens, <clears throat> it's like when a woman becomes a prostitute, she's lost forever and will never find her way back into respectable society. But it wasn't really like that. Especially in the in, in working-class areas, you might for a while be a prostitute. You might later on be a housekeeper uh, and run a, a lodging house. It was something that you might have to do. Uh, and, it, of course, it was very prevalent. Um, and So do you think, would people have headed from other parts of London to the East End to participate in this activity? Or was it sort of... As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Of EastEnders looking after EastEnders? Well, I think a bit of both. If, if you wanted to make a living as a prostitute, as a you know high class prostitute, you would go up to Covent Garden, right, and, and where the theatre land was. But also, but if you were a man on the prowl, if you were, you know curb crawling, you would come to the East, East End. End right. So, bit of a mixture, yeah. really. Yeah. But a Victorian woman called Josephine Butler felt had a long campaign against legislation called the Contagious Diseases Act that the government had passed, whereby in seaports. Prostitutes were rounded up and checked whether they had venereal diseases. Uh, and even at that point, Josephine was saying, but hang on a minute, who gave them the venereal diseases? You know, why are the women being locked up? 
yeah. and not the sailors who are responsible. And I think that that was very radical. Yeah, and, and, and logical to the and mind logical, of today. Yeah. yeah, but to raise that in, in the 1870s was, was a very brave step. And eventually, Josephine Butler did win uh, and, and the, uh, the acts were abolished. But what I normally say is, um, if you go around the corner, if we're now out at St. Clement's Hospital, as was, that's now Yeah, become, on Bow Road there. Yeah, yeah, flats. That was the old workhouse. That, that had been a workhouse there since the 1850s. Right. And that was what the working class really feared. Um, going in the workhouse Let's discuss was, this a little bit the worst uh, thing in that depth. So, obviously, um, going into the workhouse meant exactly what? It meant that you were separated from your other half. Men and women were kept separately. Women were kept separately, so the whole family was broken up. You'd find it very difficult to leave the workhouse unless a friend or relative could offer some form of employment or money to get you out. And all sorts of people ended up in the workhouse, including, of course, Charlie Chaplin, who was in a workhouse as a boy. Yeah. Um, and so it meant loss of dignity, but also with the Anatomy Act in the 1840s, after you died, your body could be given or was given to medical science. So right. you could be um, cut up. So, you know, not only do you lose your body, but you also lose your, your soul in the afterlife. Yeah, as it which were. would have been important to people in those which days. Which would have been important yeah, to people. What, um, what activities would have been undertaken in the workhouse? I mean, well, how would you have been kept? It was fairly pointless work. I mean, the men were given jobs which were very repetitive, breaking up wood and things like that. The women would be doing the housework and the cleaning and so on. But it, it wasn't what we might focus on today. There wasn't any retraining so that it could develop skills as plumbers or something. Right. It was designed to humiliate people. Um, and that was the whole point of the workhouse system, was to be as unpleasant as possible to deter people for asking for help from the state. And it's not until the 1900s when um, the government brings in old age pensions and unemployment benefit that people can at last relax a bit and think, you know, I, there for the grace of God. Would yeah, be. yeah, there's some means to support yeah, me if I fall uh, on hard um, times. Years ago, I used to work in a geriatric hospital in Hampstead, which used to be a workhouse in the old days. And it was upsetting sometimes to talk to the patients there because they were confused, they had a bit of dementia, and they knew they were in the workhouse building. And that used to really quite upset what, So them. they would have remembered that that building was once They'd a workhouse. They remembered okay. because workhouses lasted until 1930. Did they? Now, yeah. I wasn't aware of no, that. They so the last workhouse was longer. Not... Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. By that time, they were mainly filled by the elderly or people with physical or mental disabilities. Yeah, because St. Clements was actually a hospital in the end, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it I became it a hospital. A psychiatric hospital. It was a, the end. a yeah. psychiatric hospital for yeah. most of its life as a hospital in the NHS. Yeah. But the same buildings were used. If you look at NHS hospitals in London, so many of them, like the Whittington, were all workhouses or workhouses infirm infirmaries. That was why they were built. So it's a bit of a grim legacy. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's return to the East End. Yeah. And continue on our little tour. We've yeah, left so Tredegar Square. So we've left Tredegar Square. We're walking along Bow Road and we haven't reached Minnie Lansbury's clock yet. But if you stop about 200 yards before that, you'll find 
uh, a little stone marker, which is where George Lansbury used to have his surgeries when he was a councillor for Poplar. And Poplar was known as one of the really radical Labour boroughs in the 1920s. We've already talked about the rate strike, uh, but it was very successful in its council house building. Um, so it rebuilt quite a lot of the Isle of Dogs. For example, we get some really great council housing down there, all organised by George Lansbury, who went on to be um, the leader of the Labour Party briefly in the 30s after uh, the national government was, was formed in 1931. But in 1930, he was actually a minister. He was a cabinet minister in charge of public works. Um, and I like to tell the story of how he helped make the serpentine swimming pool open to women as well as men. Because when they were planning this new public works, um, his civil servants had said, oh, no, we can't have women as well. There'll be peeping toms behind every bush in Hyde Park. No, no, we can't have that. And Nansby was true to his suffragette principles because he had been to prison in 1912 and did his hunger strike. Uh, only briefly, because he had a heart condition, they let him out quite quickly. Right. Uh, he said, no, no, women are going to be able to swim on the same terms as men. And you'd be surprised that as late as 1930, women were still being arrested for public order offences for swimming in rivers. Crazy. Can you believe it? Absolutely crazy, you know, isn't it? It's the same thing, shocking public morals by wearing a swimming costume. So that's a nice legacy that he's left us. He also insisted that the price be kept deliberately low. And this was a statement, because this is like in the middle of the West End, the Hyde Park, you've got yeah, deliberately yeah. cheap public baths, which are still open today yes, and still are. enjoyed for thousands, by thousands and thousands yeah, of London. Yeah, they go for a swim on Christmas Day and break yeah, the ice, from what absolutely. I can remember. Yeah. So let's continue to pot around the East End because, as I say, it's an area I love. Yes. Um, well, we can go back and look at um, more of Sylvia's work. I mean, she... She started the toy factory in Norman Grove, but she was actually a pacifist. She didn't believe that the First World War should be fought. And um, during the First World War, she met uh, an Italian anarchist called Silvio Corio. Corio. Silvio and Silvia. It's quite a nice yeah, it is. story. Yeah, it's got a ring about it. Yeah. yeah and, and the irony was, by the time the war ended, she didn't vote because... By that time, she'd become a founding member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. She'd, she'd moved to the extreme left. Um, and in the 1920s, she was one of the first people to sound the alarm about Mussolini and the fascists at a time when the government was still quite keen on the fascists as bringing order to Italy. She began to say, oh, no, 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 they're, they're going to be really dangerous. And that proved to be correct when... They invaded, the Italians invaded Abyssinia yeah. in the late, in the mid 30s. And of course, now we had the Franco Ethiopia in Spain. And Franco in Spain. Yeah. Um, and she did a lot to alert people about the, the, the Ethiopians, so much so that after Silvio died, after the Second World War, she actually lived in Addis Ababa for 25 years till she died. When did she die? She died in 1970, so extraordinarily long life. life yeah. And she's a national life. heroine in, in Ethiopia. There's a square named after her. Uh, so, you know, a, a really interesting life, not only the suffragettes, but also, you know, the, the the whole anti-war movements, anti-colonial movements. She can't have been easy to live with. 
I no, don't think. No. The final straw, I think, was when she had a baby boy with um, her lover because they didn't marry. Right. Uh, and her mother, Emmeline, was totally scandalised by this. And they never met. You know, it's quite sad. Right. Yeah, you would have thought her about. mother being um, leader of a woman's movement yeah, exactly. would have respected her daughter's sort of activities, choices, choices not, and activities. Not, not at all. No, no. not at all. Very, and, very strange. And, and they weren't reconciled. Emmeline died in um, 1928, just before women got the vote on the same terms as men at 20. At 21. Right. And um, again, let's return to the East End and, and talk about the sort of um, improvements. <laughs> now, these women were obviously responsible, um, yes. along with obviously various men yes. in helping the East End, because I think it was obviously, if you divide London into four quarters, that would have been the hardest quarter. That, that was always, if you look at the Charles Booth poverty maps, that's where you're going to get the poverty because yeah. the men were so often involved in dock work, which was really casual work, so you couldn't rely on having the same weekly income. Uh, and, and women were often involved in what was called sweated labour. So they'd be doing piecework, making clothes, or even matches, actually. Quite a lot of matches were made yeah. in, in women's houses while they, matched, while they minded the children. Because they were working through middlemen, they couldn't strike in the same way as Bryant and May. But in the 20s, you get councils able to make a difference because in after 1918, people can, everyone can vote for your local council. So they become fully democratic. Uh, and far more women became councillors than became MPs. It was much easier for women to stand at the local council level. And also they enjoyed it more because it was subjects close to their hearts, like housing, education, Yeah, and you can probably services. see the fruits of your labours. Exactly. Yeah. You, you're actually doing something in yeah. a local council, whereas if you're an MP, you're trying to influence the, the law, but it's a, a long haul. So you get women like Julia Skur, who had been a, a, a guardian at, at the local workhouse and tried to improve conditions there, then a suffragette. Then she ends up on Poplar Council, her husband's an MP for the local area. And you get a lot of political, um, political couples working to produce mother and baby clinics, yeah. Because I, I believe that Bethnal Green at one time, I think, did they return a communist MP? Um, I believe that's so, yeah, although I, I thought it they, was Battersea, to be honest. Uh, yeah, it might have been Battersea. To, I don't know. I, I just that. I remember being in hospital, this interesting story, In um, I'd had my appendix out and I was lying in bed and the man in the bed next to me, was uh, he'd fought in the Spanish Civil War. Oh, wow. And he came from Bethnal Green and he was regaling to me all these stories, yeah. just like you have done about the East End and life. And I remember him saying that um, he stood... Um, or worked for the Communist Party of Great Britain in Bethnal Green. And I think he said to me we were successful. Up to what point, I'm not certain. It's probably in, in the council elections. I think there was only ever one communist MP, and that for was in Battersea. Battersea, right. Which... But there's a similar story from where I come from in, in, in Hornsea, when the communist candidate came quite close to winning the seat in 1945, 
uh, from the Conservatives, you know, is quite a shock. Yeah, uh, all sort of working class enclaves, yeah, which have in- obviously changed nowadays, yeah. Hornsey, Battersea. I mean, to, to bring it up to date now, the East End is certainly not the East End, even that I knew growing up. East End is transformed, really. Yeah. There's, Roman there's, Road Market's still there. Yeah, the market's still there. It took a bit of a pounding during the pandemic. It's not the same amount of stalls, but it's still there. Yeah, There's a lot of local people still there. But they're not so visible as in Sylvia Pankhurst's day. No, and, and obviously Canary Wharf, as you mentioned, development. You you stand there and you can see Canary Wharf from anywhere yeah. along Bow Road, and it's made a big difference. But I think the old day East End spirit is still there. You know, you 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 talk to the stallholders, you you go in some of the cafes and so on. It, it's still there, yeah. but it's a little bit more. It was always a cultural melting pot, of course. People did sort of move into the area um, when they first arrived from overseas, didn't they? Yes, of course, the East End was where um, a lot of the Jewish people went when they had to flee the pogroms in Eastern Europe. That was a massive part of the Jewish experience. But nowadays, it's quite rare to to find that sort of community. We've now got the Bengalis who moved in from the the 50s onwards, and, and that's had a big impact on... The East End, and they've got their own stories to tell about, you know, dealing with the the anti-fascist movements of, you know, of, of dealing with the fascist movements of the nineteen seventies, and yeah. you know, some and um, rent strikes and so on. So, so the know, legacy that these the women handed on. on, it lives yeah. on, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Una, fascinating as always. Thank Good. you very much indeed. Nice to talk to you.